Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. We're at Mansion House today, in the heart of the city. We'll be digging into the history of the place in just a moment. One of the less well-known facts about Mansion House is that it has underneath its rooms which used to be used as holding cells for prisoners. And there's a special one there. It's called the Birdcage. What do you think that was for? And who do you suppose inhabited that cell? Answers coming up. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. Okay, you know where you are. A radical transformation. Very radical transformation. Morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square would have a place called the Kittle Hoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. The hell is that? <laughs> a man is tired of London. He's tired of so life. So, what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed Woolworths. It's, it's a very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, meet what, immersing yourself in the sight, sounds. And for the Jewish community who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris. He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced that is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. Uh, people frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. Uh, it'll mean it's dead. Informal entertainment, that's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Well, hello, hello. Yes, it's not looking very much like spring or even summer. Is it? Uh, June coming up tomorrow and a grey overcast sky hangs low over London. You'll be able to hear that we're right next to the enormous building site by the side of Mansion House here, a large scale construction going up there. The building site sounds in stark contrast really with the musicality of some of the street names here, not least of them Woolbrook. If you follow the course of the road, Woolbrook, uh, you you find yourself down at the river and that's because that road uh, really takes the course of the buried and by some people forgotten Woolbrook River. An exclusive interview with one of London's most senior figures is at the heart of today's programme. A few facts about the location at which that interview will be held though. Mansion House you may of course recognise from the annual speech given by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Mansion House speech which is always about the state of the British economy and really it's also a venue for other city functions. Now if you're a fan of that sort of thing I'd strongly advise getting in on one of the 
the all too infrequent tours of the building. If you do get an opportunity to get inside the mansion house and take a look, they've got the most astonishing collection of art. A lot of Flemish masterpieces, some of few names I recognise here, particularly Franz Howes, Pieter de Hooch. And it's not just the art on the walls that's worth looking at, but the walls themselves and indeed the ceilings. One of the most astonishing features is the ceiling of the Egyptian Hall. It's a 19th century arrangement, incredibly detailed. The exterior of the building no less striking. The mansion house itself was built between 1739 and 1752 in the Palladian style, which is to say... Uh, lots of big columns at the front there. It echoes really the style of some of the buildings around it. And it's at that area, if you, if you think about the Wellington statue, Bank of England, Bank Tube Station, that kind of area, you're in the right place. And in fact, it's a building really that I think I, I overlooked, uh, despite its, its size and its beauty and its strength. It is kind of squashed in there. I'm certainly not the first commentator to have spotted that. Sir John Summerson wrote that it leaves an impression of uneasily constricted bulk, adding that on the whole the building is a striking reminder that good taste was not a universal attribute in the 18th century. Perhaps a little unkind, I think it's very beautiful. Now the construction of the place, and indeed the funding of the construction of the place, was noted by Mark Twain in a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. He says... It reminded me of something I had read in my youth about the ingenious way in which the aldermen of London raised the money that built the mansion house. A person who had not taken the sacrament, according to the Anglican rite, could not stand as a candidate for Sheriff of London. Thus, dissenters were ineligible. They could not run if asked. They could not serve if elected. The aldermen, who without any question were Yankees in disguise, hit upon this neat device. They passed a bylaw imposing a fine of £400 upon anyone who should refuse to be a candidate for sheriff and a fine of £600 upon any person who, after being elected sheriff, refused to serve. Then they went to work and elected a lot of dissenters, one after another, and kept it up until they'd collected £15,000 in fine. And there stands the stately mansion house to this day to keep the blushing citizen in mind of a long past and lamented day when a band of Yankees slipped into London and played games of the sort that has given their race a unique and shady reputation among all truly good and holy people that be in the earth. And one last thing, what was that birdcage? Well, it was, a, it was a cell designed specifically for keeping women in, and that celebrity inhabitant, none other than Emmeline Pankhurst. Well, let's get inside the mansion house and meet today's very special guest. It is the Right Honourable, the Lord Mayor of the City of London, Roger Gifford. Well, I've just been told that we are in the Venetian parlour here at Mansion House and uh, more ornate a ceiling I've never seen before. An enormous gilt chandelier hangs above us almost threateningly. We've walked past a lot of Dutch masters on a staircase up to meet my guest today, who is the Right Honourable, the Lord Mayor of the City of London, Roger Gifford. Hello, Lord Mayor. Hello. As I've been preparing for this interview and I've been mentioning to people very proudly that I'm going to meet the Lord Mayor, uh, everybody's first response has been, oh, Boris. And uh, I've had to sort of disambiguate that one. Does that sort of thing happen a lot in terms of the people's uh, conception of the the role? Yes, it it doesn't happen so much inside the city where people are aware of the Mansion House and the Guild Hall and the Lord Mayor. Uh, Outside London, and particularly I think outside Britain, there's there's often some confusion. But um, it's very quickly clear 
cleared up. And uh, we, we're, we think Boris, Boris is a fantastic uh, proponent for, for London. He's a great supporter of financial services and the banks. And having that external voice to the city itself is, is really great. And, we, and he's, he's, just been a, he's just been fantastic. So we're very supportive of, of, of him and his role. The, the Lord Mayor of London, of course, has the, has the position where he's, he is the kind of specific ambassador for British UK financial and professional services. So there's the difference in that Boris is supporting everything that happens in London. We're supporting everything that happens in financial and professional services, banking, insurance, law, maritime law, um, energy law in Aberdeen, all the way through the country. So it's, it's a different emphasis, but we're, we're mutually compatible. Yes, I, was, I was very interested to see that you're also very much representative of the maritime side of things. How does that fit in alongside everything else? The, the Port of London. Port, I mean, that London is, 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 always has been and is today one of Britain's principal ports. And that's, therefore, the expertise that, is around, that, that there is around maritime services, maritime law, shipbroking, um, is, is, is huge. And, and we have firms like Clarkson's here in the city of London, very, very, um, probably the, the largest and best broker in the world, uh, as well as all this, the sh- shipping insurance side that's here, represented through Lloyd's and others. So all that maritime um, business is still terribly crucial. I mean, 90% of the world's trade still goes by ship, not by air or, or land. So it's, um, it's very important that we, the expertise that the City of London has is, um, is, is important to it, important for a business point of view and important for, for global trade. Yes, I saw that one of the, maybe part of the mission statement that you had when you took office was to ensure that the city serves society. And I wondered what you meant by that and why that was your emphasis. I, I think there's been a tendency in recent years, in fact there's been a, probably a reality in recent years, that the city has been seen as an island on its own, as an entity to itself, uh, full of people doing business and making money just for themselves or for the, for the company that they work for. And of course, as in all businesses, what we do is we serve customers. Now, those customers might not, might not be in the UK. They might be in France and Germany and Sweden, or they might be in Australia and, and Africa. The point is, customers matter. Every company here is serving a client somewhere. Those clients, particularly in a UK context, form what we call society. So the phrase, the city in society, is deliberately chosen to emphasize the city's role as part of society, not apart from it. You can hear the, the rhetoric tripping off my tongue. Um, and, and, and the idea is to re-emphasize both to the, within the city and, and outside it that um, service is key to, the, key to the, the, the city's economy. How are you going about implementing and, and getting that message across? Mm. The, 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 the Lord Mayor tends to give a lot of speeches, so all the speeches are very much have, that, have that language in it. When I'm meeting people, I think I'm emphasizing... The, both to banks and to insurance companies and to other firms, the importance of portraying themselves as servants um, and as, as serving clients. I mean, without being unduly, unduly humble or unduly um, demeaning about it, I think that's always been there. It's just it's become a little bit hidden in the in the heady decadence of the of financial services in the last uh, decade, or at least up until 2007, when it all started to change. Well, yes, and, and there's an image, uh, perhaps quite a negative image of what bankers are that you've presumably got to compete against and overcome as yes. well. Yes, you're absolutely right. I'm 
delighted you asked me that, pointed out that question. No, I'm, I mean, I'm a banker, and I'm very proud to be one. I've worked for a Swedish bank for 30 years. Sweden had its own crisis 20 years ago, as indeed did many other countries in the kind of property bubble immediately after the 80s, early 90s. Um, and I think that collective memory um, in Swedish society has served the bank very well over the period, and they, they have not had an issue at all in the last um, five, six years. Nor, by the way, have Canadian, Australian, uh, Japanese uh, banks, or, or from many other countries. It's, it's been very much a um, European and American um, issue in the last in the last five years. Banking everywhere has been affected, but the kind of the negative image of, of bankers, I think, has been has been particularly the case in those countries. Nordic bankers, Canadian, Australian, as I mentioned, have absolutely maintained their reputations and their integrity throughout the period. There are 250 foreign banks in London against the two or three or four large British banks that are occasionally cited for, 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 you know, for having, having, having misbehaved or not having the right culture. I would argue that a huge proportion, and certainly in my own experience, the banks that I know, the foreign banks in London, are extremely responsible and extremely conscious of reputation and how they behave. How important is the general public perception of um, I don't want to say the banking class, but banking as a as, as a thing, as a as a potential island. I, it's very important to the retail banks, especially to the big UK banks. It's important to them because they they have this relationship with UK society, which is which is key, and um, and both the trust levels and the and the you know the levels of service that they give, and therefore the trust in the institutions. That's very important. If you're talking about some of the major Deutsche, Citibank, J.P. Morgan, or my own SEB here in London. Of course, the UK perception is less relevant than the perception back in Sweden or America or wherever it is. So, um, you know, our society as a foreign bank in London is very much a Nordic society. It's not the UK. It's the Nordic society. We operate in the UK, as many banks do, because the markets are here. But, the, but the, our society that we serve, our communities, are based in Scandinavia. It's very interesting, sort of, sort of Viking uh, thing still going on. I, I wondered if we could talk a little bit about uh, you taking over the role. I know that you've had a very illustrious, as you mentioned, a very illustrious banking career. Is it right that you're still the, uh, I think, the, the UK uh, manager for, for your bank uh, while you're holding the role as Lord Mayor? No, I'm not. I'm on, I'm on assignment from the bank for, for this position for the year, and I will be going back to them in, in November. I know there's a Byzantine process by which you were able to ascend to the office. What was the experience like as, as an individual becoming Lord Mayor and perhaps interacting with your predecessor? Well, to take the second bit, the second question first, um, interacting with the predecessor was, uh, was, was very good. We, we now have a system where we, which we call a continuum, surprise, surprise, where we, we have a regular program of initiating and bringing in the next Lord Mayor and indeed involving the past Lord Mayor every year. So my predecessor last year is involved in, oh, possibly an event a week at the moment um, if I'm not available or if I'm travelling. Similarly, past Lord Mayors who are still in the City of London are, get quite actively involved in things that are going on. The next Lord Mayor, or the next likely Lord Mayor, I should say, because the election isn't until September, is also getting involved, particularly in, in areas where she has a, a natural interest and expertise, which is energy law and some of the African countries. So that's the relationship between the, of the continuum between the years, and I think that, that we're very conscious of that, and we want to get it as smooth and as, as right as we can. Um, the first part of your question was about the process, 
You used the word Byzantine. I didn't, but I would find it hard to disagree. It's a very democratic and very accountable process, and every stage is absolutely open and transparent, but it is a democratic process that is drawn out over a number of years. So my first election as an alderman, which was a public election with competition, uh, was in 2004. I was re-elected again as an alderman in 2010, I think it was. This is a six-year term. And thereafter the process of becoming a sheriff and then becoming a lord mayor are equally um, open and democratic the sheriff is chosen by the liverymen of the livery companies of london and the lord mayor is chosen from two people chosen by the liverymen of the city of london so it's complicated but it allows people time both to see what the job is going to be like because you have this quite a long lead time up to it it also allows you um, a period of reflection, whether you really want to do it or not, because it's a very big job. Mm. Um, and it also gives you the, it, you know, it, it gives you opportunity to plan ahead. It would be very hard to come into this job this November if you hadn't had a good half year to a year planning for it beforehand. So it allows you some certainty when you're coming up to the role. The, 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 the next year's candidate um, is known as SABTAC, the senior alderman below the chair, because uh, he or she has been chosen by the liverymen last year as a potential future candidate. So complicated, yes, but absolutely clear once you know how it's done. And it works. So why, if it ain't broke, why fix it? And what about the person-to-person element of that continuity that you speak of? What sort of uh, forewarnings or guidance did your predecessor give you? Oh, l- lots, because we, 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 we get on very well, and I hope I'm giving lots to my, my, my likely successor too. So I think the everyone has their own style in the job, but I think there are particularly business issues. Uh, there, there, there are relationships with ministers, with countries, with visiting dignitaries that are very useful to involve people in. There are some countries we go to every year, China, Brazil, uh, Russia, India, and normally a number of European countries, um, normally the Middle East. And then there's a host of others that are developing countries that we go to as well. I'm this year spending time on the west coast of South America. I've just been in Nigeria, Ghana and Angola. And um, I will be going to Indonesia and Malaysia, which probably won't be visited next year because they're being visited this. But on the ones where there's continuity, such as the Middle East and Russia, um, then there's a strong involvement of the next candidate so that they can get to know the people and begin to, uh, begin to form their own relationships. So I'm going to Russia in two weeks' time, and the next likely Lord Mayor is coming with me. So we'll spend three, four days visiting institutions there, seeing banks and talking about, uh, talking about Moscow. And I know you spend, uh, well, something like 100 days out of the, the country in the year, 22-ish countries. Uh, the, the statistic that really amazed me was the idea of 800 speeches in the air on average, which is sort of two and a half speeches a day getting on for it. To be honest, I'm not counting. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not surprised. That seems like a terrific workload, though. I mean, for, for, bearing in mind, presumably, that each speech is accompanied by a function of some sort that, that you must attend. That, that seems... I mean, every, every, uh, when is a speech a speech? I mean, when is it not a speech? I mean, it's the, the, there, there are many events, and that, that the, the, the role is to be present and to represent the City of London, to promote the city in its various aspects, depending on the occasion, and very often there's a speaking opportunity. But every next speech is the most important one. <laughs> Do you enjoy public speaking? Um, uh, yes, I think I do. Thank you. Because <laughs> some people, it's their, uh, their, their worst fear, so I was, uh, no. I was hoping that it was something you enjoy. No, I, d- I do enjoy it, and it's, it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's an art. I've been a musician all my life, so I've always been performing on, on instruments. So um, the idea of public performance is not strange. The challenge of doing it well is huge, 
I mean, it is not easy to speak in public effectively. It just isn't. And I think that takes a lot of practice, and I'm very conscious of needing that practice. So more practice, the better. By the end of the year, I'll be great. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. By the end of the year, I'll be much more practised. For, for those seeking to speak in public, is there a tip that you might, uh, that you might give them? Um, I think speak slowly and clearly, and I'm not sure I always do that, but um, try hard. What instrument do you play? I play the piano and the recorder, and I sing mostly. The piano, yeah, okay. So the, the piano in particular seems to me to be uh, rather a high profile. It's not, not as though you're one amongst the the mass of violins. You're perhaps oh, used to to a high no, profile position. The, the piano is for my own enjoyment primarily, and I, I did my grades at school. I haven't got a lot beyond that, and I'm not a good sight reader. Whereas singing in choirs and singing solo, I've done much, much more. That's been much more of an activity, and I play the recorder relatively seriously, Bach and Telemann for instance, rather than do re mi. <clears throat> the high-profile moment that you had very recently, of course, was at Baroness Thatcher's funeral. And just, just on a very personal level, I, re- I realised that you were carrying the sword of mourning in front of the Queen, Her Majesty the Queen, and Prince Philip as they entered St Paul's Cathedral. A lot of eyes on you at that moment. And really, it got me to wondering whether there comes a moment in your work where like a trapeze artist on a, on a wire or something, you look down and go, oh, bloody hell, I'm on a trapeze. Yes, you're absolutely right. You do. And, and I think, actually, I think beforehand, you, you think a lot about the, you're, you're going to be on, on camera and, you know, is my hair straight and have I put on the right socks today? But when you're there and doing it, you don't. You just get on with it. And I think the, the enormity of, of, of Baroness Thatcher's funeral was... One, I was very conscious that there were many foreign dignitaries there, many people who'd come for this extraordinary person's life. Um, there was also some controversy. There were those in the streets who, who didn't agree with everything that she did or said, or perhaps anything that she did or said. Um, I'm not one of those. But, uh, but given, the, given the comment around it and the eyes of the world, of course, the night before I didn't sleep terribly well. But at the, on the actual day, it was just fantastic to take part, and um, the, the Queen was charming, um, and not, both, both before and after, we, we, had, we, had, we had opportunity to speak briefly, but she was charming, and, and certainly that charm makes one feel that much more relaxed about walking up and down. And of course, it's not the first time that you've met with Her Majesty. I don't know whether it's a very regular occurrence. No, actually, one one doesn't. But uh, there was an opportunity soon after she came to the Barbican Concert Hall for a for a for a, for a very special occasion, a commemorative concert. So uh, I was able to meet her then. I wondered when you feel least like the Lord Mayor of the City of London, and I guess uh, I'm asking that because I'm, I'm conscious of how much you must inhabit the office and, and inhabit the role, uh, perhaps more so than a lot of other people doing their jobs, and how you manage perhaps that public-private balance. Hmm. Uh, I think the, when I put the rubbish out on a Sunday night, um, I don't feel at all um, different from anybody else in the, in the city or the country. Um, I think some of the rest of the time, you, you naturally are conscious of the, of the public side of the job, but much of the work really is not about that. It's not about... Uh, dressing up and flummery um, that's maybe one or two percent of the all the time much of it is business is about meeting people particularly people from abroad many many government and treasury officials from foreign countries come through the doors there's probably a meeting a day related to the work of the city of, of london um, sometimes that's pure promotional you know it's a great place to come and set up your bank other times it's uh, they may have an issue about uh, the financial transaction tax or about visas or about something which we'll try and help them with most most of the work is around that and 
be honest, it's not so different from the work I was doing before at the bank, which was, again, a fairly representational job. If, if there is a tendency to become um, self-aggrandized and important, there, there are a lot of people around to bring one down a peg or two, not least my wife, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've seen the gold coach that you've travelled in at, at least one point, and it, it seems comparable with the Queen's gold coach, and I, I wondered what that might do to the size of one's head to be uh, travelling around in such a thing. <laughs> Well, it, it, of course, it's a tremendous experience, and it probably, and of course, it swells the head while you're doing it because it's such a, a privilege. It's an extraordinary privilege to have that to have this position for a year, but you know, it is only a year, and um, it all comes. I'm already halfway through, so uh, this this time is rushing by. You mentioned the people around you, and there are some job titles that are pretty interesting, and, and they, they don't seem to crop up elsewhere. Yeah, the, the City of London Corporation is, is the most amazing institution. It, I mean, it has a history probably well over a thousand years old when you take the various bits into it. And some of the titles, like the, the Remembrancer, the, the Chamberlain, uh, the Town Clerk, they're, they're old-fashioned titles, but they have very modern equivalents. The Chamberlain is uh, effectively the finance director, the Town Clerk is the managing director. We have a chief commoner who's effectively the leader of the house, um, and, and so on and so on. So the, the, the terminology might be old-fashioned, um, reflecting the history and the tradition, but the modern City of London Corporation is extremely effective uh, town council with a difference. I looks after looks after substantial assets in addition to the to the town town's own assets, the City of London London assets. I think I remember that there were some tweaks to some uh, titles and descriptions for the sake of clarity, perhaps a disambiguation between, for example, the the Mayor of London uh, relatively recently. Is there a value that you see to holding on to some of the um, the, the, these older um, job titles rather than something that that sounds a little bit more 21st century? Well... It's a good question. I'm not sure quite how to answer. When, when you, if you are ever granted your freedom of the City of London, you are that takes place in the Chamberlain's Court, and on the wall there is a list of Chamberlain going back to I think the early 14th century. Now that feels rather special, and I'm not sure that simply to change that for the sake of so-called modernity. I'm not sure I find that very persuasive. I think there's a lot to be said for maintaining the title Chamberlain. I think there are many other parts of society uh, where we're stuffed full of titles, and maybe those titles will change over time as well. Who knows that President has become Chief Executive Officer, which has become Managing Director, which has become, you know, may change again. So I think there's something in the old titles. Maybe that would lead us into uh, talking about the people who've held the title before you have and and how you see your relationship with them and indeed for for those perhaps not too familiar which of your predecessors uh, sticks in your mind all the way back to dick whittington um there are i mean dick whittington was very famous and i mention him simply because we've my, my wife claire's written a new children's book about him but also adding on to the adding on to the normal fairy tale about him with uh, with description of some of his works as a philanthropist and an, uh, an initiator of, of public amenity um and now that was all the way back in 1415 or so um and, and in many ways he was a he was a, a model of what a lord mayor might be very much a philanthropist very much a businessman the two together and I like to think that um, that you know, people in the city today can be a combination of the two, both business people and philanthropists, which many, many of them are. Um, I think the, 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 the being a one-year term doesn't 
lend itself to people becoming terribly famous in their one year. One of my most favorite was a man called John Wilkes, who was, um, he was Lord Mayor in the 1750s. Um, and I, the reason I mention him is that he's mentioned in Boris's book, Johnson on London, an excellent, an excellent volume for anybody who wants to read about London. And he's mentioned in there because he was an extraordinary, he, he almost had a vision of religious and l- tolerance and liberty in London. But he clearly foresaw a very international, very diverse London. And that diversity is exactly what we have today. 270 nations, 300 languages spoken, many of those in the square mile, because people come here to work. And religious difference is it's not totally irrelevant, but it's absolutely um, absorbed into the culture of most of the major organisations um, here in the city. So, so Wilkes said, all, all the way back in, uh, in, around, in the 1760s, I think it was, he said, um, I wish to see, rising in the neighbourhood of a Christian cathedral near its Gothic towers, the minaret of a Turkish mosque, a Chinese pagoda, and a Jewish synagogue, with a temple of the sun. So all, all those years ago, he could foresee the kind of place that London might become in terms of tolerance and diversity and understanding and respect between religions especially I think that's fantastic and that seems a very particularly with some of the UKIP debate going on at the moment uh, that seems a very liberal sort of outlook but I understand that your part of your role is to be strictly apolitical um, it is indeed well done you got that right absolutely bang I wonder whether sort of promoting the interests of business is itself already biased towards one end of the political spectrum no, I think it's biased towards um, prosperity and wealth and wealth creation. And that's a universal, global um, um, aspiration. Which I suppose forces one to think, that, that coming back to the idea of what the public perception is of bankers and so forth, what you feel about and perhaps what you're doing about wealth distribution and, and fairness and equality, th- th- those kind of issues. Mm. Yes, absolutely. But I mean, the, the, the comment on prosperity and wealth creation doesn't, uh, is not a comment about... Um, taxation or about uh, social diversity I mean which I believe very strongly in but I mean in order to be socially diverse and in order to spread wealth as much as we can through society you need to make the wealth in the first place so uh, let's all go for that first With the general outlook of UKIP in mind perhaps and seeking to draw away from Europe rather than find closer integration I wonder what you thought about the European Union and the UK's relationship to it well, firstly to say that the city has a huge number of European players here. Um, European banks, European insurance companies, European law firms, and, and, and all the rest. Secondly, many countries outside the European Union like to see London as their base for entry into the rest of Europe. And I think bo- both of those are, are important when you look to where the city of London can see its relationship with Europe going. And that's why we say we're, we're, we're very keen on, on the open markets, and on the single market, and indeed we're, we're pushing all the time to develop more open financial markets, but in, more of the single market, around MIFID II around, um, and around the other directives that have been coming out from, from Brussels. We're actually very positive to many of those. Um, so I think the, in all the, the discussion about Europe, what happens at the edges, what happens on certain directives, we are very keen to say that we want to maintain and see open markets and anything that jeopardizes that we would be unhappy about where do open markets become problematic in in any way or is the the more openness the better is is there a a boundary to that Uh, in general the more open the better and and, and, i mean within the within the framework of european law or even british law and company law particularly um we we think open markets are a very good thing indeed the city of london has thrived on open markets 
Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 16,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet, or desktop, or burned to a CD. And they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. You mentioned the difficulty of making your mark on the role in such a short time and also presumably being run off your feet for the entire year as well. I wondered uh, what you would seek to have as the mark that you leave uh, if such a thing were possible. I'm not sure it's possible. And I I think uh, I, I don't... I don't think I, I don't sit here with the aspiration to try and make my mark, but I, but I would be delighted if the public at large understand the city a little bit better and what a what a what a very diverse but also a very how much good is done here and how important wealth creation is for the whole of the United Kingdom and the city is about wealth creation for all. I'm reading this as, as being connected to your idea of the city serving society. You, you seem to see this very much as a uh, as you uh, giving service to the city, giving your service to, to your country. Yeah, that the, the the city and society is the theme. But I mean, it, this is very much it's very much for, for me a year of uh, giving up. It's an unpaid post. Is that right? Correct. Oh, I, I had no idea of that. It's it's um it's always been unpaid. In fact, <laughs> yes. Does that mean that you that one needs to be uh, relatively well healed in order to contemplate doing it? I, I have I certainly have some support from from the bank that I've been working for, which is fantastic. But I also also you would not want to do this job as a without any resources at all. No, you you would be difficult. That's very interesting. Mansion House is given as your residence. Does that mean that you really do live? You, I was intrigued when you mentioned putting out the rubbish. I was wondering if you're out the back of Mansion House doing uh, that. <laughs> no, no, outside the back of uh, of the house in Camden, which is where we where we live when we're not here. In which case, what sort of function does the Mansion House perform for you? We, we live in Mansion House. Claire and I live in the Mansion House during the week. Um, we go home at weekends, normally a, a night or two. And so we, we, li- we live upstairs in a, in, a, in a flat upstairs. I'm very curious to, to wonder whether the upstairs is quite as opulent as it is here, where we are looking at, uh, at columns and reliefs and gigantic fireplaces all around us. Yes, I mean, it is the, the, the honest answer is yes, it is also relatively opulent. But I think it's more... It, the, there is opulence to it, but it, it's not like it's gold-plated. This is very much pl- original 18th-century plasterwork. And I think it's the plasterwork, and particularly the mouldings on, on the ceilings, are just wonderful. And I, if anybody has the opportunity to come and see it, I, I would encourage them to do so. There are regular tours available on a weekly or other weekly basis. Um, so do come and see it. But it's, I think, I'm not sure I'd take the word opulent. It, it's, the plasterwork is extraordinary, and extraordinary for its diversity and for the elaborate um, nature of much of it, including upstairs. But I th- it's, uh, the, you, you, you don't see a single bit of gold anywhere. So it's craftsmanship rather than wealth, yes. It's good British craftsmanship all the way through, that's correct, yes. Which, in, in a, a curious sort of way, actually might bring us to the ceremonial garb of the position. And given what people have been saying about uh, Boris Johnson and, and maybe just the, the need to, g- to get a different visual perhaps for the Lord Mayor's office, the, the first thing I think that came to my mind was the, the gold coach and uh, sort of a red costume and a, a mayoral chain. I wondered if we could talk about how else people might identify the Lord Mayor, what might stick in their mind about that position perhaps on a, on a visual level. 
Well, the, the, the position isn't projected to the general public as, as in the business form, particularly. I'm not sure whether it needs it or whether it should have it or not. But the, the obvious, the obvious uh, uh, evidence or the obvious um, depiction of the Lord Mayor is on the show day, when there he is with you know, 5,000, 6,000 people in the show. Um, uh, and it wasn't raining this year. And, um, and, and, and this had most fantastic community parade, basically, with all the floats and from, from many different parts of London society come in for that. And that's what people see. So it's understandable that with the fairy tale and with the, with the Lord Mayor's show day goes a little bit of colour and the gold coach. The, the rest of the time, I think the, the, the position is very much one of a, of a business person trying to, instead of promoting their own company, they're promoting the City of London and, and as I mentioned earlier, financial and professional services throughout the country. I've just been in Scotland for two days, um, talking to them about law and uh, law and insurance. So in the, the business community, particularly the international business community, will probably understand and see more of what the Lord Mayor does, leading business delegations abroad, receiving foreign guests, hosting, uh, hosting events here at Mansion House. Um, much of that isn't put over to the general public, so it's, it's, uh, maybe they're left with the image of the coach. Which in itself, of course, is a, a very strong um, visual. So maybe uh, thinking about the Mayor of London, Greater London, um, what is your relationship with Boris, other than loving his book? And um, where, where, do you, where do you differ and where do you have uh, similar points of view? Well, um, we're, I'm trying to think of anywhere where we differ. I mean, he, he, he is a great... He's also a great salesman for financial services, um, particularly in London, and that is very complementary with what we're saying about professional, financial professional services as a whole. Um, his is very much a running London job. He has the 32 London boroughs, of which the City of London is one. Um, mine is very much uh, promoting the city. So there isn't really a lot of areas for us to get into a great big argument. I mean, it just does, there isn't... There's, there's no conflict or difficulty. Well, I'm imagining, for example, that where there are finite resources and uh, all the different boroughs of London competing for them, you must on occasion seek to make the, the loudest noise and uh, sort of swing things in the favour of the, the City of London. No? no, that's very much handled at, uh, between, the, between the council, the, the town council itself, between the City of London, the, the Guildhall, if you like, and, uh, and, um, and the, the, the Mayor's office directly. So actually, I haven't, I haven't had a single conversation on that level at all coming to national government what, what, what is your relationship personally with those in charge of running the country there's quite a good strong relationship with the UKTI um, with Lord, and Lord and Stephen Green's department what, what is uh, UKTI uh, United Kingdom trade and uh, this trade and industry uh, there's, a, there's a very strong contact with the foreign and commonwealth office um, because of the they help to arrange the foreign trips that we make there's uh, occasional contact through with the home office and others on specific issues Otherwise, it's mostly through to the FSA and the Bank of England, the new PRA and the, F, um, and the FCA, um, to the, new, the two new um, supervisory authorities after the FSA has been, has been split in two. Could, could we linger on that point uh, a moment there? I think oh, the barrage of initials uh, perhaps left me a little fuddled. Could, could, we, could we break that down slightly? Yes, 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 yes. Sorry. The, 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 the city is, is, is regulated well, by a number of regulators, but the two principal ones are the Prudential Regulatory Authority, which now reports through the Bank of England, and the Financial Conduct Authority, which is dealing with more uh, of the retail end of the market, which is still independent and sits down in Canary Wharf. 
And, and your relationship with those is what precisely? Oh, um, they, they are the regulators for the, for, for the city. Um, and we have a very, you know, very cordial, open relationship. Sometimes there are issues to discuss. Um, much of the time there isn't. But, uh, you know, that, it, it, it's, it's a good relationship. We're, we're perfectly alongside. So they regulate what the banks, insurance companies and, the, and, and all the other firms are doing. The City of London Corporation is alongside them as a separate authority. I want to get closer to you personally. Uh, you came from Trinity, Oxford, and you've been with, as you, as you mentioned, SEB. The, uh, I can't pronounce the full name. I've no, tried a couple yeah, of times. SEB is good. The Skandinavske Enschildebanken. Thank you. And I wondered, with, with those and with various... I think you're ch- Chancellor of City University as, as well. I wonder, uh, you as an individual, whether it becomes daunting or overwhelming to have all these uh, institutions which of course I realize have um, supported and continue to support you but whether the the commitments uh, and the level of commitments and the timetabling that could risk overwhelming you it, it could if there wasn't a, a, a really terrific team both in the guild hall and here in the mansion house to run the programs to manage the and to manage the interface with with the many many different institutions that the mayor has to meet so Actually, there are you know there are thirty staff here in Mansion House, they're helping to run the whole building as well as run the programs, and there's an economic development office team up at the uh, up at the uh, Guildhall as well as the public relations office and all the apparatus of the town council, all of whom have um, have terrific input and help to manage programs and manage the the daily diary, help to write the research for some of the speeches, um, and so on. So there's a, there's a huge support team there. And perhaps finally, given a couple of days off and a free hand, what would you turn your attentions to? I think when we, Claire and I enjoy walking a lot. So we, we, I think when this year is over, we'll be back out to Santiago to finish off the bit of the, of the, of the walk that we haven't done from Santiago to Finisterre. And I think if we, when we occasionally get a little exhausted with, the, with what's happening here, we think wouldn't it be great to head to the hills and just go for a, a day's walking? Well, well Mayor, Roger Gifford, thank you very much indeed. Very nice to speak to you. And that's all for today. My thanks for today to Lord Mayor of the City of London, Roger Gifford. Thanks too to Andrew Buckingham, Becca Evans and Bernie Barclay. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.